helps us during Christmas time as we focus on the gifts that we give to others. But now we turn in our Bibles to the book of James. As we even look into the Word of God. In James chapter 1. As James writes here to those that have scattered abroad various instructions to the twelve tribes who have been dispersed probably because of persecution. Here in James chapter 1 verse 22. The encouragement that James gives to us reads this way. But prove yourselves doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. This morning we're blessed to have a friend of our church. His name is Doug Nichols. He is the uh, international uh, director and founder of Action International Emeritus as he has stepped down from that role, but he's still as busy as ever uh, with pastoral development and uh, helping pastors around the world in training, encouragement, and uh, helping to oversee many of the missionaries that are abroad. We're blessed to have him as our church has been involved with Action International, whether it's to uh, Mexico or having, I have, having gone to various places where they serve. Uh, having a, an organization that is local has been a real blessing and uh, has been wonderful knowing uh, him and his uh, wife as well as his father-in-law, Pastor Walter Jesperson. Uh, many of you perhaps uh, don't realize when I was a little boy, Pastor Jesperson used to come. He was a missionary from China. used to come and preach at the church that I was at. I was probably a junior higher, just like you folks. And he was a missionary in China, and he would come back every so often. And he has a long, long, rich uh, heritage of uh, missions work in China. But I want to ask if you would give a warm welcome to Doug as he comes forward to open the word. Thank you, Pastor Joe. You know, Joe, uh, Pastor Joe and I have the same name. Or in other words, well, really, uh, for years, uh, I was called Joe. In the Philippines, uh, any Americano, any white person, uh, is referred to as, uh, you know, the G.I. Joe because of the war. So every time they see a white person, they say, hi, Joe. <laughs> so one day I decided to play some jokes on some people. I was downtown Manila and these little uh, Filipino children and said, uh, hi, Joe. And I turned to them and I said, how did you know my name? And they thought, they thought for a moment and one boy said, oh, you just look like you'd be named Joe. And uh, I thought that was quite funny. So I was at a corner waiting for a red light to change. And another girl said, uh, hi, Joe. Kind of embarrassed. I said, how did you know it's my name? Oh, she said, I've seen you before. <laughs> they came up with all these excuses. So Joe and I have the same name. You know, Margaret, my wife, said, uh, are you going to be speaking about Christmas today? You know, I only have seven messages and not one of them is about Christmas. <laughs> By the way, I've spoken here six times. <laughs> this is number seven, so that's it. <laughs> Don't ask me anymore. I'll, I'll have to study. <laughs> it's been uh, wonderful to be uh, in fellowship with you. Thank you so much. Thinking of, uh, 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 Pastor asked me if I would, he's having a series on marriage, and uh, uh, if I would be speaking on marriage today, and I said, you know, really, I don't recommend marriage. And he said, why? 
I said, well, look, face it. I have the number one. Why would I recommend anybody get married? They all get number two, three, or four. <laughs> and, uh, but I know all of you men feel the same way, or you should. You know, you could, uh, marriage is a, you know, a different situation. I was interviewed on the radio on Thor Tolo when I came back from Uganda a couple of years ago. And I was um, being interviewed, just 15-minute interview about children of Uganda. And at the, we were waiting in the lobby and he came through and I introduced him to Margaret. And, and so Thor Tolo, when we started the interview, he started, you know, just he said something like, uh, Oh, Doug, I met your wife uh, out in the lobby. What a wonderful lady. He says, How long have you been married? And I said, uh, 37 years. He said, 37 years. 37 good years. And I said, No, 36 good years. He said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, the first year wasn't too good for me. I said, I begin to realize what a terrible person I was. Inconsiderate. I wasn't polite. I wasn't caring of my wife. And I said, "Um, you know, the Bible says that when we get married, the husband is to care and to nurture. But what happens? I began, I got married and I thought, what should, should, could she do for me? And what should she give for me? And so it was quite a learning experience. And, you know, he was crying and the lady in the control booth was crying. And so we talked about marriage for 15 minutes. That was the interview of my talking about children in Uganda. So they had to break for a commercial. And then they came back and we were able to talk about children in Uganda. But I'm wondering, men and women also, you know, what is your relationship? How do you treat your husband or how do you treat your wife? You know, the scripture gives very clear guidelines. And I think, you know, some of you single people, you kind of get bored about hearing about marriage. You should learn all you can while you're single. And you could be a blessing to others. You know, some of you young people who are not married and some of you older people who are not married. Let me ask you something. When you're with couples, do you help them in their relationship? Do you say things like, you know, I notice you never open the door for your wife. How come? I noticed that when we go to a restaurant, it's always you are wanting to take care of everything. You know, how come you don't take care of your wife or wife to husband? Uh, why, how do you talk? Why do you treat your kids this way? Now, you don't have to say it bluntly and heartily, but, but over a period of time, minister to people. Well, you know what the scripture says. Well, then help others who are married just because you're single. That doesn't mean that you cannot speak about marriage. You can be a great blessing to others in their walk with God. That's what the body of Christ is for, isn't it? Isn't that what the body of Christ is for? And so, some of you, others, you know, you see children, some, you know, uh, teenagers. You know what teenagers, you know what a teenager is nowadays? Teenagers known to be grumpy, hard, you know, and so forth. You can help teenagers. You know, many of them don't have friends. Be a, a minister to them, help them. And also help them in their relationship with their parents. Now, since I've made an enemy of everybody today and offended everybody, maybe I should get to my message. <laughs> but see, that's what marriage... And, uh, no, 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 let me say something about Christmas. Christmas is a wonderful time. Now, in spite of the fact it's very commercialized, you can use it for the glory of God. Because at this time of the year, it's a wonderful time for you to give a, a box of fudge or, 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 or a gift to someone with a gospel track. And maybe even print out your testimony and say, I wanted to bless you at this time. As, we, as I give a gift to you, remember the gift 
which is given to us by God, his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever you do, this is true. People you've met at the, at the grocery store. You know, you, the reason why you're not giving a, a, a gift to your boss this year is because you don't want to. Uh, you don't want to make him think that you're, uh, you're, uh, you're trying to get a raise or something. You know where the focus is? The focus is on you. When you should be ministering to people, thinking of others, well, we don't want to do something because it may make us look like, you know, the emphasis is on ourselves instead of on others. Christmas season is a wonderful time to minister the grace of God to others. I'm having a hard time speaking today because I have my hearing aids in. I have two new hearing aids. And uh, it's hard to speak. You get a lot of uh, echo. But, you know, I got these hearing aids from a man who gave me a gift. Have you heard of Randy Alcorn, the author? He uses his money to bless others. He bought these hearing aids for me. He said, Doug, you know, your friends will really appreciate it. You know, you have very few friends anyway. This will help you keep the few you have. <laughs> so if I uh, get kind of confused today, don't blame it on me. Blame it on my hearing aids. Blame it on Randy Alcorn. <laughs> Turn your Bibles to the book of James. Book of James, uh, the title of my message is Faith in the Works of the Gospel. Just one verse, my text, James 1.22, which the pastor read, but prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. I have three points. Number one, tested faith. Number two, true faith. And number three, timely faith. Let's look at point number one concerning faith and the works of the gospel. Faith does not come by works, but faith is evidenced by works. You see how it works? But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. So point number one, tested faith. Look at James 1, verses 2, 3, and 4. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect, mature result. So that you may be perfect. That means mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Now listen carefully. The trials and tests of faith result in endurance, perseverance. 1 Peter 4.12 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing. Now, now listen. Testing from God is not that he will know where you stand. God is God. He knows everything. The testing is that you will know where you stand in relation to your walk by faith. You see that? The testing is not that he will know, but that you will know, that you will learn from that situation. Whatever God brought you into, that trial that you will know where you stand. That you will see what you need to, to, to grow in grace and knowledge of Christ. Now, what are the tests of faith? Disappointments? Misunderstandings? Loss of your job? Loss of a position? Sickness? Poor health? Death of family? Death of friends? All of these are God, are of God to make us better, not bitter, but better. To grow us. No matter what the situation, God is still God. Do you believe that? 
whatever the situation you're going through, whatever you feel like, God is still God. God is still God whether he heals you or not. God is still God whether you have pleasure or not. Did you know God is still God whether you have friends or not, or family or not, or husband or not, or wife or not, or kids or not? God is still God. No matter what the disappointment you are going through, God is still God. Whether it feels good or not, whether you're satisfied or not, whether you're comfortable or not. Oh, I can't do that because I'm not very comfortable. Whether you're comfortable or not, God is still God and you can trust him. Psalm 66, verse 10, 11 and 12 says, for you have tried us, O God. You have refined us as silver is refined. You brought us into the net. You have laid an oppressive burden upon our loins. I have a hole in my stomach because of my cancer. It's very uncomfortable, very embarrassing sometimes. God laid this heavy burden on my loins. You have made men, the psalmist says, to ride over our heads. You know that, that, that boss that you have, that situation you're in, that people are pressing down. And who put them there? God put them there. We went through fire and we went through water. Yet you brought us out into a place of abundance. You know, when you study this, it seems like all that's in the past and now you're having a great time. But the place of abundance is in the midst of the fire. That's what's hard to understand. But that's what the scripture says. John Bunyan said, To suffer aright or correctly, one must learn to live upon God who is invisible. I can't, you can't see Him. And that situation that you're going through, you can't see, feel God or see God, but He's there. And to live by faith, you must learn to live by faith in the one who is invisible, but He's there. Isaiah 50 verse 10 says, Who is among you that fears the Lord, that obeys the voice of his servant, yet walks in darkness and has no light? What do we do? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely upon his God. You trust him. You're obeying him. You think you do everything just right. And yet you're walking in darkness. You have no light. But isn't that what faith is? Is faith walking in the light where you see everything? Or are you stepping out in the darkness knowing that God is underneath? That God is holy. See, that's walking by faith. Proverbs 3, 25 and 26 says, Do not be afraid of sudden fear, nor the onslaught of the wicked when it comes. You know, that's a promise. Don't be afraid of sudden fear. You know, I don't be afraid of fear. I'm a fearful person. But I don't have to fear that fear. Nor the onslaught of the wicked when it comes. Listen, if you don't have trouble today, just wait till tomorrow. You probably only have to wait till tomorrow. Just wait till after church. Or wait till the Sunday school kids get out. Do not fear sudden fear nor the onslaught of the wicked when it comes. Because God is always at your side. Right here. You know, there's a verse in the Bible that talks about God being over us and around us and in us and under us and... But here it talks about God is at my side. John, 13, John 16, 33 is the promise of Jesus. What's the promise of Jesus? These things I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you, you will have tribulation. I like that promise. But be of good courage. Take courage. I have overcome the world. So the troubles in life that you have, 
They've been promised to you by Jesus himself. Sickness, weakness, and difficulty are the very things that God uses to glorify his name. No matter how dark or desperate things get, God's hand is always in control. You can trust him for that. I read a poem this morning. William Cowper. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him by his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purpose will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste. In other words, that that difficulty may be hard to taste, bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. You know, but let me let me mention that God doesn't always glorify his name for the purpose of working in and through your life. But he's always thinking of others as well. There's another purpose. The providence of God has a wider issues in mind than merely our personal comfort or our personal gain. In answer to the off-sided question, in times of difficulty, why me? The forthcoming answer is always them. God allows us to suffer that others may be blessed. Have you ever thought of that? Joseph suffered for many years that his family and you and me may be blessed. Stephen died. Who was at his feet holding the, the, the garments of the one stoning Stephen? Paul the Apostle. Paul was blessed through the suffering. And Jesus even said, you persecuted me. The suffering of Stephen resulted in the Apostle Paul coming to faith in Christ. God will put you in difficulty for his glory, for your good, but also that others might be blessed. In August of 1994, I had just finished a year of an intensive treatment for cancer. That's when the Rwanda crisis broke out and a million people were slaughtered. Another million escaped into the, the neighboring country of Zaire. And they were put into a, 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 a refugee camp in Goma, Zaire. And because they were drinking impure water, 50,000 people died in three days. Well, I was able to take a team of doctors and nurses to Goma. And we landed in that death camp. And we began to work and. One of the things we did was hire 300 men to make these makeshift stretchers to carry, to pick up bodies and bury them, but also to bring the live ones to us so that we could try to help them save their life. After three days, the spokesman from these group of 300 came to me and said, we're going on strike. I said, what? Going on strike? strike? What do you mean a strike? We're demanding more money. Uh, well, we're not going to work anymore. I said, how can you demand more money? We have no more money to pay you. We've already paid you for two weeks. We gave you everything we have. We have no more money to pay you. They said, nope. You know, because I was white, I must be rich. Therefore, we have a lot of money. We want more money. So finally, I said, well, would it be okay if I, if I talked to the men? And they said, yes. 
said yes. So I, we gathered the 300 and I went up on the steps of an old burned out building and, and uh, they all around me like this. And I said, uh, he was translating for me because I didn't speak their language. And I said, uh, they were all angry and I thought this was like a mob. They were going to kill me or something. Hey, me, you know, whatever. And quite scary. And they were there. And I said to the translator, I said, you know, I don't understand your situation. I can't really feel in your situation. I've never had any difficult thing. You know, you've been forced out of your country. Uh, we've told you we, uh, and it's very, you're desperate. Uh, we've, you, I've given you money, but you want more. And you probably, you're probably scared yourself. I said, I just spoke to him this way. I said, but you know, we have no more money. We gave you everything. I know you don't believe us, but that's the truth. We have nothing else to give you. But we paid you for two weeks. Please, would you, if you don't work for these, if you don't go out and work and try to bring these people to us, many people will die. And then I just changed my tone a little bit and said something like, but I really can't understand your desperate situation. I said, I've never had anything terrible happen to me like you've had. You've seen a million people slaughtered. Your, your, Your road ran with blood and you escaped to this place and you've lost your family and friends and and uh, and I just uh, I have nothing I've had nothing like that happen to me. The only thing that's ever happened to me, I have cancer. And the man stopped and he said, what did you say? And I said, uh, what? And I said, do you have cancer? And I said, well, well yes. <laughs> he said, you have cancer right now? And I said, well, yeah. He said, well, what, does your doctor know you're here? And I said, oh, yeah, my doctor knows I'm here. And in fact, he told me that if I came here because of the terrible condition and I have no immune system, I'd probably die in three days. He said, your doctor told you not to come here and yet you came here. What if you die? And I said, well, just bury me out by one of those trees there. Well, he began to weep. And he says, you don't have to say anything else. And then he turned and he preached. <laughs> Now, I found out later what he said. He said, I don't know about you. This man has cancer. He's willing to come over here and die for us. I don't know about you, but I'm ashamed. I'm going back to work. And so he just walked off. I don't know what's happening. He walked off and he grabbed the stretcher. His friend grabbed one and they went back to work. Pretty soon, two others got got one and another one got one. And some of the men up here, they crowded up to me. I didn't know what's happening. All of a sudden, they started crying. One of them grabbed me around the legs and just cried on my knees. And very moving. And everybody just started grabbing the stretchers and going back to work. You know, I thought about that. Why did they go back to work? Because I had cancer. Isn't that something? I didn't enjoy cancer one little bit. But, you know, thinking of that, my cancer... Blessed hundreds, if not thousands of people in that refugee camp with people being brought to us that we might save their life and especially share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. Tested faith trials results in persevering work. Number two, tested faith, now true faith. James one twenty seven. Pure and undefiled religion, true faith, in the sight of our God and Father is this. To visit, which means to care for, not just to, not just to say visit and say hello, but visit to care for, for a purpose. To care for orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Have you practiced true religion today? It says true faith. 
is caring for orphans and widows and keeping yourself unspotted from the world. I heard a message this morning from James Boyce. How is your, uh, how is your walk with God? Are you keeping yourself unstained from the world? Or are you just, just like the world? You know, you can hardly wait to, to get someplace because you can, so you can watch the game. Or you can hardly well, you, do, do, do this because you know if you do this, you'll get a better investment for your... You, you know if you do, you know, you watch this, you know, it kind of makes you kind of look kind of sexy when you wear this certain dress. Are you... Well, let me ask you. Are you unspotted from the world? Do, do you... When people look at you... I'm reading a, a, sto- a life story of Robert Chapman. He was a, one of the founders of the Assemblies in England and... The 1800s, and it says that whenever he went, people just for something about him, he, he he looked holy. Now I'm not sure what the look was like, but he was known as a Charles Spurgeon, one of my heroes, said that Robert Chapman was the holiest man he had ever met. And it wasn't just the appearance, but the appearance was a result of his inward life. Something was, he was kind and humble and gentle and gracious and understanding. You know, unspotted from the world. You know, when you're in the world, it causes you to manifest. Instead of smelling like the sweet smelling savor of the Lord Jesus, we have a tendency, the, the stench of the world. Are you unspotted from the world? What about the other part of this verse? Caring for orphans and widows in their distress. We have more orphans now because of the population of the world than we've ever had before. 143 million orphans in the world. Street kids, 160 million. I was just in Thailand two weeks ago. In Bangkok. And I asked a lady working in Bangkok. I said, I heard that in the city of Bangkok... There are 800,000 girls under 16 years of age that have been sold into prostitution. And she said, no, that statistic is wrong. It's well over a million today. A million. And I only know of four ministries working among those girls. Isn't that something? You know, in my my country, the Philippines, 100,000 kids on the streets of Metro Manila. One and a half million throughout the country. Kids living on the streets. You know, I was sick recently. Not too long ago. And, and I was lying in bed. And the window was open. I had fresh air. I had a nice bed to sleep in. The toilet was not too far away. Uh, I, my wife gave me chicken soup. You know, chicken soup cures anything. You know that? Chicken noodle soup. And, uh, and I had that. And I had, you know, and all, I had all those things. You know, what happens when a street child gets sick? What is it? Where, where does he go to the toilet? Where does he get fresh water? Who comforts him? Who cares for him? You know, where does he get his food? He has absolutely nothing. Does that kind of give you a, an idea of, of, of one reason why we should do something? A child should not have to be raised fending for himself, therefore becoming like a little animal, but they should be cared for and ministered to. Why are there 143 million children in the world and 160 million living on the street? Somebody needs to do something about taking care of them. Jesus said what? Allow the children to come to me and do not hinder them. Well, though none of us would do anything to purposely hinder a child from coming to Christ, what are we doing to make it easy for them to come to the Savior? 
You know, when you see a teenager in a grocery store and you don't necessarily like teenagers, are you friendly with them? Are you doing something that somehow would make it easy for them to respond to the grace of God? And I know that children are taught nowadays to not have anything to do with adults. But when you are around children, are you kind to them and gracious to them and understanding with them and, and, and helpful for them? To make it easy for those children. To, what is this church doing to develop means and ways for a child to easily not only hear the gospel but understand it and come to faith in Christ? My grandson is named Douglas Charles Nichols. I said to my son, I said, Robbie, I know why you named him Douglas, but where did this Charles name come from? And he looked at me disappointed. Dad, you're a hero. Your favorite preacher, Charles Hendon Spurgeon. There's another Charles I'd like to tell you about. Charles Loring Brace. Have you heard of him? Have you heard of the orphan train? In the 1800s and the early 1900s? Do you realize in the United States of America, at one time in New York City, which only had a population in those days of 100,000, they said that one time there were 30,000 kids living on the streets, orphans, of a city of only 100,000. They weren't counted. 100,000. One pastor of a church smaller than this, 26 years of age. Are you 27 or 28? I forget. 26 years of age decided to do something about these kids on the street. His, his church was a little Methodist church of about 75 people. And they, began, they started the Children's Aid Society. They started putting these, these children in homes up in northern New York. And pretty soon they ran out of homes. But he heard there were Christians out on the train route. The train, you know, the trains going out to the, to the west, and these people living on farms in Nebraska and Iowa and uh, Michigan and Minnesota, and they said, and they would take kids and Christian families. So he started putting kids on these trains. They call it the orphan train, and they would. It wasn't ran very well to us uh, what we would do today. But listen, what they did, they would have a Christian committee in every town and, and they would pick out families. And because they didn't have all the record keeping, we would have today computers, the kids would arrive. They knew 30 of them were coming, but they didn't know the age. Train would pull up, kids would get off the train, kids would line up, and these families would come and just pick one. You know, the man on the farm needed a 12-year-old boy. To, he didn't have any sons. They help him on the farm, and he'd take the 12-year-old boy. And people in the city, they always wanted girls. Here's a little girl, and they'd take them. Some of the kids that were not too attractive and quite ugly, you know, they were the last ones. And people would finally adopt them, and realizing that God had brought them to himself and and all their filthiness and sin and they needed to reach out to the ugliness of the world and then take one family took these two little ugly boys and back in you know their teeth all scars and everything on the end and they took them and one of them became the mayor of the governor of montana and the other one became the governor of alaska you know they were loved and cared for you know but that's what happened do you know how many kids were put on those orphan trains 250,000 children. 250,000. Little 26-year-old man. Church of 75. Eventually took care of 250,000. I figured up this morning. 
My wife and I have been married this year will be 39 years. December 27. We're having a party. Would you like to come? 39 years. We've been in ministry. I've been in ministry 40 years. We've been working with children. You know, most of these years. Children. I figured up this morning, probably, we have touched the lives of possibly 90,000. This little 26-year-old man. No days of no, hardly any electricity. No, uh, no, no, no computers. No way to organize the way we do now. No websites. No, 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 nothing. No way to communicate like we do now. Took care of 250,000 people. Friends, it's, it's, it doesn't mean that we need to copy everything somebody else does in caring for the needy of the world. And some of us, but it needs to be, we need to do something. And don't let the huge, the, the, the task deter us. You know, like Charles Spurgeon used to say, don't let the immensity of the task deter you, but let it drive you to do something about it for the glory of God. Someone said, our plan should be so big that if they fail, only we get the blame. But if they succeed, only God gets the glory. And many of us, we don't want to step out in faith because if we fail, we get embarrassed. What happens? Where's the focus? It's on us. But instead of the people that need to be... Our plan should be so big that if we fail, only we get the blame. But if we succeed, God gets the glory. Jesus said, allow the children to come to me. Don't hinder them. It's Christmas time. Years ago, we helped start a church. It's now 14,000 people in the Philippines. They started a, another church that's now about 2,000, north of Manila, south, of Manila, south of Manila. And we, we were there one Christmas, and it's a rich church, you know, wealthy people. And, but right next to them is a slum area. And so I'm speaking, and, and God begins to move in people's hearts about, maybe we should do something about all these kids. And you know, the, the intelligente of the Philippines, you know, Chinese and Filipino, uh, they're, they're sharp people. And so they decided they weren't going to do this, uh, uh, just a little measure, go over and buy a bag of rice and throw it up in the air and hope it hits somebody. They decided that they're going to have a, do it right. So they put up a huge Christmas tree over here in the, in the, in the church sanctuary, which is a big warehouse that they painted white, put in air conditions, and a, and a big Christmas tree up here. And they had been, went over to this slum area, and they got the names of 300 kids, and their ages and everything. And they gathered them, and they had a big kind of a party farm and everything. And they, now, what is your wish? And the counselor would sit down with the child. What would you really want for Christmas? And one of them said, oh, I'd like a watch for my dad. My dad's never had a watch. Oh. And they put this in an envelope, and then they put it up on a tree. Asked the little girl, what would you like? Oh, I would like a, a doll for my little sister. Whew. And they put that up on the tree. And another one said, I'd like a house and lot. <laughs> well, they still put that up there. He didn't get it, but anyway, they put that up there. <laughs> and they went through it. And one of them said, I would like a pair of Nike shoes. Nike shoes is a month's wages in the Philippines. Would you spend a month wages? Well, I mean, some of you women would own a pair of shoes. But anyway, you know, but they put, put all that. But they did this. So then they had the big... And on Sunday, they said, now, we'd like you to help us participate with this. So this week, 
Will you go up and take one of the names? Now, if you look at it and you say you can't buy that, put it back on there so somebody can. But all 300 people in the congregation came and got all 300 of those. And that week, they went out and they did their shopping. And they wrapped the presents with the person's name on it, the little boy, little girl's name, and they brought it. And then they had a, end of the week, they had a huge party for all these 300 kids. And at the party, they went to McDonald's. They played games and everything, and wonderful thing. And then, then they began to eat, and they brought in McDonald's, a big bag of a hamburger, Big Mac, and fries, and and uh, Coke, and everything. And they saw that a lot of kids weren't eating. McDonald's is number one. They love McDonald's in the Philippines. They weren't eating. They were saving it to take it home to their brothers and sisters and mom and dad because they never got a McDonald's. They had to beg these kids to eat. They said, we have a, a, we have a box of groceries for your family. This is for you today. You know, please eat it. So the kid, they talked, had to, can you believe this? Had to beg the kids to eat. And then they gave the presents. <laughs> and all these people who bought the presents were there. They wanted to see what would happen. And these little kids, this is a little boy opened his present and he got a, had a watch for his dad. He just jumped up and ran home. He wanted, he could hardly wait to give it to his dad. And Nike shoes and so forth. And they said there were more tears shed at that Christmas party. But you know, you want to talk about an impact in this slum area for the glory of God? You know, true religion is caring for orphans and widows and their distress. You know, not that we would copy something like that, but it would be a good example For us to minister. True faith results in pure work. Number two, number three. Tested faith and true faith. Now, number three, timely faith. Look at verse 417 of James. James 417. Timely faith. Therefore... To one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, what? To him it is sin. This is the practice or action of faith which results in practical, sacrificial faith. It costs to do the right thing, doesn't it? See, I can tell you these nice little stories, and you might, but it's going to cost you to do something like that. It costs to do the right thing. The right time, God's time, is not always convenient or according to our schedule. Too often we see something that needs to be done and we don't do it because it's inconvenient, it's difficult, it's costly, it's dangerous. Or we even say, I can't do a very good job at that. So we walk on the other side of the road and leave the man in the ditch. remember seeing a little 12-year-old girl in Malawi. I was with three chiefs. They were showing me this village. All the older men had died of AIDS. Younger men had died of AIDS. The younger women had died of AIDS. The only one left in the village were the little kids and the, the older women. And I saw a little 12-year-old girl. Now listen to this. 12-year-old girl with her two brothers and sister. With her three cousins that were younger. 12-year-old girl responsible for herself and five other children. I said to my wife later, 
I don't know much about raising kids, but I know more than a 12-year-old girl does. Do you see that? And you, you, you see situations every day. You say, oh, I don't know much about that, but who put you in that place that you can even see the need? He put you there. You say, well, I'm a woman. I can't do that. Well, I'm, I'm, a, I'm young. I can't do that. I'm a man. I can't do that. Or I, I don't have the education, the background, the money. But who put you in that situation to see that need? You. He put you there. Is God sovereign or not? Why did he put you there? How come he didn't bring Pastor Joe? How come Pastor Joe wasn't there? He's not there. You're there. When I came back from Africa, I decided I needed to know something about how to handle disasters. So I took the Red Cross disaster training. We saw a story of a little 14-year-old girl that took CPR lessons. The very next week, she took in the summertime, the very next week she's at a swimming pool with her friends. Two other teenagers. And a man had a heart attack. And was lying, not from swimming, but he was on the side of the swimming pool and had a heart attack and dying. And everybody's just yelling and calling 911. And somebody said, somebody should give CPR. And this girl had just taken the training. So reluctantly, very frightened, very timid girl, she decided to, to help him. So she started giving CPR. Her two friends, typical girls... Well, they were standing on the side screaming and everything. Oh, come, stop, go away, let's go, let's leave. You know, it's embarrassing. People are looking and da 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 and all this stuff. Let's leave. They weren't giving her any encouragement, but she continued to give CPR and save the man's life. Would you do that? I was on a plane in Calcutta one time. It was a Thai Airlines. I was in Calcutta flying to Bangkok and then on back to my home, our home in Manila. And I was very exhausted from my time in Calcutta, which they consider the armpit of the world. I mean, it's a terrible place. And emotionally, I was drained. I was physically, I was a wreck. And finally, I'm sitting in this air-conditioned plane. And, oh, it's so comfortable sitting there. They even put an orchid in your, on your seat there. And they brought you some fresh orange juice. And it wasn't even first class. I mean, oh, this is nice. And I'm sitting there on this side of the plane. And then there's a big section in the middle. About, you know, like this. And then there's a section over here. So I'm sitting here. Drinking my orange juice. Men sitting on the left. And they, they fill up this section. They fill up the section over there. But the big section in the middle, there was nobody sitting there. I thought, oh, man. As soon as the plane takes off, I'm going over there. And I'm going to lie down and go to sleep. But that's not what happened. Pretty soon, after everybody got on the plane, they brought in, people started coming in with these big baskets. And they put a basket in each seat. I thought, what in the world? Is this a, a, a vegetable or a fruit plane going to Bangkok? You know, and what, what have they got in Calcutta that they're going to import into Thailand? They're putting these, these baskets here. So I undid my seatbelt and got up and looked. Oh, there were babies in every basket. Two babies in every basket. They were found out later they were going to Bangkok and then put on another plane. They were being adopted in Germany. And I thought, well, so much for sleeping on this plane. And there was a there was a one lady, a caretaker, an Indian lady sitting here right across from me, and one way over there. Two women taking care of all these babies. Well, the plane started, you know, backed up. We started taxiing out on the runway, and 
the flight attendant coming down the aisle, making sure our seatbelts were on and checking. And all of a sudden, she looked over in the section. She saw something was wrong. She runs up to this lady from India and starts very excitedly telling her to do something. But she was speaking in her excitement in Thai. This Indian lady did only knew Bengali. She didn't know this Thai stuff. And this lady starts frustrated. She started yelling at her. So she starts crying. Oh, man, this is what's going on here. So she's yelling at this girl lady over there. She starts crying. I thought, what in the world is going on? Finally, the flight attendant just runs to the next section. I thought, man, something's going on here. I undid my seatbelt and got up to see what's wrong. Oh, that's what's wrong. The baby's baskets, they didn't have seatbelts on. So I just reached over there and put a seatbelt on this one, seatbelt on this one, seatbelt on this one. Going down this road, started getting on the other one. Plane's going down the runway. And everybody's yelling at me, keep going, keep going. I thought, well, why don't they help me? You know, I'm going like this. Up there. Finally, I finished the last one. I came back and jumped in my seat, put on my seatbelt just as the plane took off. Now, listen, the man next to me sees all this. He says, wow, you must really like babies. I said, not particularly. He said, well, why did you do that? I didn't know what to say. Finally, I just said, well, I'm a Christian. And God has given us Christians a a, a book on how to live. And his book says, he that knows the right thing to do and does not do it, it is sin. I said, sir, I did that because I didn't want to sin. And you know, he said, what? It's really sin if you don't. I said, the Bible says that. And because of that, by the way, because of that situation, I was able to witness this man. Although I'm not an evangelist, but that doing that little good deed opened the door for me to share the gospel with this man all the way to Bangkok. We had a board member in the Philippines on our board, Dr. Micah Poussin, probably one of the greatest preachers living today. Dr. Micah Poussin is in New York City now. And he was the director of the, of, of the church in the Philippines called the Christian Missionary Alliance, denomination in the Philippines. And I asked him one time, we were having a board meeting and we broke for refreshments and we're talking and we're very good friends. And I said, I said, Pastor Mike, I said, why is it that the church is growing so much on the island of Mindanao, that southern Philippines, where all the Muslims are? I mean, it was a very violent area, but the church was growing. So many were being converted and, and start, churches were being started. He said, well, Doug, the reason is we have more of our pastors who are dying. I said, what do you mean? He said, for example, several weeks ago, they had graduation from a, uh, the Christian Missionaries Bible School. And one of the boys, young graduates, was sent to a nearby island, a Muslim island, to take care of a group of little believers. And they had a little, that's rough little church fellowship. And he was going out and witnessing and sharing the gospel and fearlessly ministering the grace of God to others. And the Muslim leaders came to him one day and said, you know, you don't stop this. You're going to die. Well, he was like me. He was very fearful. So he calls his dad. His dad was a pastor on the main island and called his dad and said, and, but his dad wasn't home. So he talked to his mother. Now imagine a mother talking this way. He asked his mother, his mom, he said, they threatened my life. What do I do? 
And the mother, through her tears, said, Son, I'd rather have a faithful dead son in glory than a son that would leave his task. Well, he took courage from his mother's encouragement and words, and he went. And the mother and father, they prayed about it, and they said, Well, we, we need to encourage him a little more. So the, the sister, the sister, who was still in Bible school, got on the boat and went to visit her brother, to kind of be with him, to encourage him. Love from the family. And Sunday came. The pastor was sitting in the front row. The sister was sitting here. 30, 40 people in this little fellowship. Someone was singing a special number like we had today. Can you imagine this? A man came in the back door and said to one of the ushers, Which one is the pastor? Oh, he's sitting up there in the front row. That's the one sitting in the front row. The man came down the aisle, walked right up in front, right between the pastor and the lady singing, took out his gun and shot him in the head and killed him in front of the whole congregation. Now let me tell you the rest of the story. The father and the mother on the main island and I don't know how many other Christian brothers and sisters got on the boat because you have to bury right away in the Philippines because of the heat. Came on the boat, they came over, <clears throat> they had the funeral. The little thatched place was filled with several hundred people on the outside. And there's a pastor, the father gets up with his son's body in front of him. And his other son and his daughter and the mother sitting in the front row. And he's preaching the funeral message of, of his son. And about that time, three Muslim clerics walk in the door. He sees them. They came to show their respects, that they had nothing to do with the, the murder. As they came in the door, the father sees them and stops the meeting and says to these three men, he says, Men, I have a word for you today. You made a mistake. You only shot one. You made a mistake. You missed four. I am ready to die that you will hear the gospel. My wife is ready to die that you will hear the gospel. My son and daughter will hear. Well, we are going to fill this pulpit ourselves to take our son's place. You've missed four. You have four to go. Wow. He said, people kept stepping in to fill the empty places of ministry. Of all these pastors that were dying, even though it cost because it was the right thing to do. My time is up. So let me finish. Timely faith results in practical work. It's always the right time to obey and serve God. So let me finish. Tested faith, number one, results in what? Persevering work. The testing of your faith produces endurance. It's always too soon to quit. The game is not over to the last bell. And then it's glory. Number two, true faith results in pure work. Make it easy for children and widows to come to the Savior. True religion is caring for orphans. We are praying in our small mission for 100
125 additional missionaries to work with children. Latin America, Africa, and Asia. Do you think perhaps maybe some of you would do that? And be faced with a problem that we had in Malawi two years ago. We had a camp planned for 600 kids. It's all the money we had, 600. The first day, 5,760 kids showed up to camp. And we had to face what to do with that, with that problem. No money. None of counselors. Even though that is a terrible thing to face, wouldn't it be wonderful if you would come and join action and be faced with problems like that for the glory of God? And number three, <clears throat> timely faith results in practical work. Do it. Years ago, we were working at the garbage dump of Metro Manila and, and over 20 to 5 to 30,000 people living at the dump in the and scavenging off the garbage and and we were working we didn't know how to really reach them with the gospel so one of the first things we did we had a camp for about 100, 100 of these kids and with it and so they went to camp and it was sacrificial you know it cost us a lot of money and it was hard and difficult and but our team wanted to do this step out in faith we have to do something for this garbage dump people hard to work with and one of the girls, Lucia, was converted. She was about nine years of age. She came back and, and she started witnessing to her mother. Her, her mother's name was Mrs. Gabu. Mrs. Gabu. Mrs. Gabu wasn't typically Filipina. A Filipina is always clean. Mrs. Gabu had given up on life. She was a very filthy, foul mouth, filthy in body, never took a bath, changed her clothes. She was just a terrible person. Hated her husband, who was an alcoholic, drunk, come home at night, she'd beat him. You know, and, and the only way he could see his wife is if he was drunk. So she'd beat him and go through his pockets, try to find some money. He's supposed to be working, but he always used it with gambling or drinking or with his other girlfriends. Little Lucia walked around. You know how little girls love their mothers, whether they're dirty or not. And she started sharing the gospel, quoting John 3.16. Romans 3.26, and just shared the gospel with her. And her mother, get, get away from me. What are you, what are you, what's that stuff you're saying? But the word of God is what? Powerful. And do you know in about two weeks, Mrs. Gabu came to faith in Christ. Do you know the first thing Mrs. Gabu did? Now, nothing in the scripture about this. First thing Mrs. Gabu did, she, they had no running water living in the dump. She bought water. She bought one of these five, five gallon things, cans of water. She bought it with you know, a little money she had. And she took a bath. Took a bath. Washed her hair. Washed all that soot off of her body. Brushed her teeth. Black teeth. and Cleaned up that little thatched little filthy squatter shaft that they had. When the husband came home that night, instead of beating him, she bathed him and put him to bed. He wakes up the next morning and looks around. Man, who, who is this? Do you know who that woman was? And the place was clean. She had breakfast ready for him. Man, he goes off to work. He was a carpenter. He goes off to work. Instead of going to his other girlfriend or gambling or drinking that night, he went home. He wouldn't know what's going on. He gets home and they have, she has supper ready for him. And, and you know what happened? In about two or three weeks, Mr. Gabu came to faith in Christ. By the way, Mrs. Gabu became the director of the largest Christian daycare center in the Philippines. Mr. Gabu became our main teacher and our discipleship and vocational training 
carpentry program for <clears throat> converted older street kids. And you know, I, I think about that. It says here, timely faith results in practical work. Practical work of seeking to do something about it for, to amass for the glory of God. And because a group of Filipinos wanted to do something about this untouchable peoples of Manila, look at the results just from the Gabu family. Tested faith, true faith, and timely faith. Let's put our faith into practice. Let's not be just hearers of the word, but doers, that God may be glorified. Father, thank you for this time this morning. Thank you for the book of James. Now bless our fellowship together after this service. And may we be an encouragement to one another and stimulate one another to loving good works. And may we buy many of these books and and share them with friends and neighbors and people we work with. And may this be a, a season that we make a special extra effort To put our faith into practice that the world may know that, yes, Jesus Christ came in in a manger, but he lived and he died and he was buried. He rose again. He's living today. Father, may we declare the glory of God as the angels did, because Jesus is alive. In his name we pray. Amen.